Hello and welcome to the Built Academy podcast, episode three. My name is Carl Storms and I'll be your host on this journey. This month we're learning from our academic and scientific correspondent, Daniel Plaza, and we're going to try to find out what he's been busy with all month for our upcoming podcast segment. Hello and welcome, Daniel. Hi, Carl. What have you been up to for, for us and our esteemed listeners this month? Well, the topic we are going to discuss on this episode isn't a thing that has been quite prominent in my life for the last months, but actually it is quite important for me for over half a year now since COVID-19 crashed in and changed my, my life quite hardly, but everybody's uh, daily schedule seems to be quite affected of it. So we will be talking about uh, new ways of, of educating and of teaching BIM method and, and the related method to, to teaching of uh, software. I am uh, a lecturer at my base university in Graz in Austria, where I'm also studying for my master in architecture. Over the course of the last 20 years, educational institutions change the way of teaching a lot and needs to adapt rapidly, not just to what they are teaching itself, but also the technologies and methods they, they need to do so. So well, as I mentioned, this episode uh, for the podcast will explore the future of the technologies in education and the way how we educate about these future technologies will, will be what, what the students later in the work daily basis will need to use. So yeah, we will review these aspects from different angles, having two remarkable people on board, which do not just help us to reflect on, on how the future will, will change, but also visit and try to review how the past as well as the moment are trying to, to challenge this, this situation of being forced to remotely educate students, not only using tools we were used to educate and teach for, for lecturing and for sharing the content, but also how to, to educate and, and teach remotely. So we are not only trying to, to promise in all of these unprecedented circumstances, but also try to enhance our digital divide in having quite a few talks with our two guests. So that's what I'm talking about. A very timely topic, and it sounds certainly very interesting. Uh, I'm curious, what, uh, what did your first interviewee have to say? First of all, I would like to, to introduce you to, to Michael McDyer, which, which is our first guest in this podcast. He is an architectural technologist with 19 years experience in design and delivery of digital construction education. In, in Scotland, UK. He is not only passionate about what he is doing in education, as his students twice won the World Skills UK National BIM competition and his college course just won the BIM Show Live Best BIM Training Program. And while just chatting with him really does, does share this big, big, unstoppable passion of what he wants wants to do on the back of all this success michael was recently also appointed as the training manager for the world skills uk 
BIM squad and is in this role responsible for the training of the UK BIM competitors at the World Skills in Shanghai next year in 2021. And since we held our last physical event in Scotland back in October 2019, we also have continued to work closely with Michael and his colleagues at the new college Lennarskshire in Motherwell. And yeah, well, that gave us quite an honor to be able to have him in this episode of the podcast as well to give us a nice introduction of how he would suggest us to improve the way of teaching having all of this experience he collected over the last years but also michael gave us quite of an interesting insight of how his private and personal life was influenced by all of the new circumstances he was uh, challenging and faced to the ongoing covid19 situation so quite exciting to jump into the interview with you carl Hello, Michael, and welcome in our podcast. It's so exciting to have you in my podcast in this exciting and strange time for all of us, where we'd like to discuss about in which way education is going. And you have one of the best insights of how we train and educate BIM in, in Scotland, UK. So thank you for sharing your time with me and all of our listeners. And welcome on board. Thank you very much. I've heard quite a lot of your podcasts um, and I know I've spoken to some of the people in the background. So it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's a big pleasure for me as well. I would like to start off with the digitalization of society and all of the various industries, which are one of the biggest major technical innovations of the century we are just right in. And it seems like innovation process in digital planning is continuing to, to steadily develop as well. But how are we actually trying to do so at school and universities? Are they able to follow up this trend and keeping up the pace or, or not? What's, what's your idea about it? How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, even your comment um, about how various industries are innovative and they're driving um, the adoption of different processes, technology and so on. I think one of the things being in education, um, I don't think education really has to try and keep up with the pace of time. I would say entirely the opposite. Um, as an educator, I think we've got to try and lead. I think we've got to try and stay ahead of that, especially if, if you think about it five years from now, I have to think as an educator, what is happening in industry now? What will that be like in five years' time? And I'm picking five years' time because I'm already thinking if I have to design a new course, whether it's just an individual unit that's maybe 40 hours of training, or is it a full year's course that's maybe like a year one of a degree, a higher national certificate, for example? I've got to look at that at five years ahead to say that's going to take us as a team working with the different colleges and industry partners, Scottish Qualifications Authority and so on. We would take maybe three to four years to even design and agree on some new courses um, and implement them, write them so that they were available to be delivered. So if you're thinking that's maybe three years away as a minimum, 
and then we would be taking students the following year and training them for that. Well, if, if I looked at what industry are doing now and wrote a course, it would be four years out of date by the time we teach it to the first ever group of students. Yeah, thank you for giving us this insight about the time we need to prepare. And yeah, well, I do agree. It, it takes us quite a lot, especially looking into a, a year of education. It is quite a big piece of work yeah. to get it done. And uh, well, <laughs> the obvious positive feedback you, you just gave us about our necessity to not just be able to keep up in pace, but actually lead technology. Oh, absolutely. And the people which we are then probably able to just uh, release off school with, with a good background is, is the biggest uh, outcome we can, we can all just appreciate from you. However, we do see that not every single university and not everybody is, is able to do so. Do you have suggestions of how training and institutions can succeed in incorporating all of these new technologies in, in teaching if they try to prepare this young generation uh, for the challenges of the professional environment, which they will have? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, um, we are, as an education establishment, really our college at New College Lancashire are um, considered leaders in the UK in terms of uh, the training or the practical training of them. But the biggest kind of feedback for us, the biggest thing that we jump on off that is working with industry partners. So yes, there are a lot of companies who were forward early adopters of building information modeling, for example, um, or even digital construction. If you look many years ago when they were, the, they were leading to, towards digital construction, you really have to work as an educator. You have to work with these people in industry. I say have to. Um, as if it's a bad thing, but but actually it's one of the best things that can be done. Um, I've been teaching since 2001, and since 2001, a lot of my students since then, even more recently as well, if you think of the number of students that I've had the pleasure of teaching, there are a lot of them who are now in really good positions in industry, where they're BIM managers, um, CAD managers and so on, BIM coordinators. Um, so I think you've got to work with those industry uh, leaders build partnerships with them so how that then influences myself we've got 46 different companies in our college that we work with and um, that's another member of staff Vivian that has over the years developed that partnership that number of partners and that's through uh, looking at work placements for our students um, and I know you've kind of got some of our students and you've been speaking to some of our students as well but they'll be able to tell you the work placement between um, the first and the second semester has been um, a catalyst for really improving one, our courses, and two, um, the student skills themselves. So working with industry partners allows, well, one, the students to get a work placement there, but also the staff. So one of the ways that I'm getting to keep up um, my skills, if you like, is even through the summer. We all know lecturers have six weeks in the summer where um, they have a holiday period to get to recharge and, and kind of relax. Uh, well, a lot of lecturers are quite uh, geeky. I'm, I definitely put myself, <laughs> I put myself in that box. I'm a geek. I'm a technology geek and I love my job. I'm very interested in my job. And actually, a lot of my hobbies would revolve around about what I do um, as an occupation as well. So I'm quite happy to, during the summer, give up some of my holiday time and actually spend time with those practices. 
So any institution that's looking to lead, any education institution that's looking to get better, I would say you've got to build a really strong industry partner foundation. Work with as many companies as you can. Involve them in as many different um, processes as you can. Involve them in the education side of it. It's all great bringing in companies to come in and speak about this is our project and look how good we are. But actually come in and teach the students some real skills. I know when I was at university, we had, over the course of a year, we had 10 different companies come to us and just sell their company, if you like, architectural companies. They just come in and they said, look at what projects we've worked on, look how good we are, blah, blah, blah. Nobody actually taught us anything. Nobody came to say, this is a really good valued skill that we would love your students to know. Why don't we do that? So that's something we've tapped into, I think, in um, New Collies Lanarkshire, getting the students into industry, but getting the lecturing staff into industry. Um, I know I've got a background and it was in construction, but that was 2001 I moved into education. So construction, especially digital construction, has moved on enormously since then. And if I don't spend some time, at least every year, working with industry partners, then my skills that I'm trying to pass on to the students are just going to be defunct. They're going to be null and void, pointless. Well, thank you for letting us know about your big, big passion, which sounds like it seems to be one of the best ways of just trying to not lose the piece and be ahead of it if you try to go out and stay in touch, not just with the companies itself, but especially with the technology they use. And I guess the, the big number of, of companies and manufacturers involved keep you as well to keep as independent as possible, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's one of the ones for us. We've, as I said, we have 46 partners. And by that, I mean industry uh, partners, companies that work in digital construction. Most of them have taken on past students at some point or another, so they know how good we are. Um, but every single one of them works very closely with us. Um, when we say they are a partner, they are assisting us in the development of new education or even how we currently deliver the skills that we do. Well, that's wonderful. And it actually is, well, <laughs> the big, big target of everybody to be able to go out and find a job, finally, because that's yeah. what we need to do. Uh, what do you personally do to provide this high quality training, not just in a sense of teaching uh, a software, but rather go and, and teach the methodology itself and try to implement this early knowledge of technology of using the human methodology of how to work and not just provide a basic software training, which you can get when you do as well? Well, I, I, again, yes, I totally agree. But um, when you say it's it's just a basic software training, I, I'm, I'm going to pull you up there because uh, our course is actually designed around about the software itself. Um, the course that I teach on is it's taken an a holistic approach. It's taken a course that already existed that was a very theoretical course. It was called Architectural Technology. The course that we designed in backing with all of our industry partners is called Computer Aided Architectural Design and Technology. So what we look at is what is the role of an architectural technologist? What is their actual day-to-day -day role? And their role, their function is going to be using the software, granted. So they need to have a really high level of software training. But what we try and do is split our course so that there is an element of theory and there is an element of practical. 
but rather than have the student as the old course would have done, rather than having the student write a report on how a foundation would work, what we do is we give the students the, the brief, if you like, and we ask them to design a foundation. But what they actually produce is always going to be software based as an AT would be expected to do in their job. One of the things that we do, even with our BIM education, we look at the mixture of how much is theory and how much is practical. If an architectural technologist is going into the industry, their job is very, very little theory. So we cap that about 30%. I'm still teaching you about um, soil. I'm still teaching you about foundations. We're still looking at loads if we're doing stress analysis. We're looking at the processes and naming conventions. We're looking at uh, Uniclass 2015 and so on. A common data environment, we will describe what it is. But everything that the student does, absolutely everything they do is practical. So at no point in the industry is an architectural technologist going to be asked, go and explain what foundation system we're using to the local authority. Not verbally, it's not going to be a report, it's going to be a drawing. So what we do is we focus all of our training into the same output that an architectural technologist would be asked to produce. Well, thank you. Uh, if you are speaking about giving to all of our students and to all of the students this insight of the practical parts of architectural technology, do you see any, any advantages of using uh, manual drawing techniques as a teaching method before going into doing it digitally or, or do you not see a big, a big win out of it? Um, personally, in my opinion, no, I, I don't see the benefit. Um, I don't see the benefit from the results that we get from our students. We used to, on our course, we used to teach manual drawing boards and we would teach about how to calculate what scale. So it's a, it's a great exercise to do. Here is a 30 meter long building and you're going to be using A3 paper. At what scale do you need to draw to draw a floor plan, for example? It's great. But since we moved to CAD and we're using AutoCAD or we're using Revit or whatever it might be, there's really, there's no need to actually do that anymore. Um, at no point, again, I'm going to go back to in your occupation as an architectural technologist, there's no point in you actually learning that because at no point do we see that you're actually going to use that skill. Um, personally, I learned using a drawing board and I thoroughly loved it because I enjoyed it and I found it interesting. But I think it's a skill that's not really transferable just now. It's a skill that's not entirely needed. Um, I... I only have my students for um, 36 weeks, for the, for the year, 36 weeks. And in each week, I have them for two full days and one half day. That's how often they would attend college. So I'm going to teach 15 different modules. Each module lasts something in the region of about 36 hours. I have to be really, really fussy. I have to be really picky about what I'm going to teach. And when we've broken down what is it that industry need, we removed things like sketching and drawing. We removed the drawing boards. We've removed uh, traditional model making, which we used to love traditional. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the thing is, Daniel, industry don't employ architectural technologists, and especially in Scotland. And we look at Scotland and uh, England as well in the UK. The physical model making has definitely been can uh, taken over. There are certain companies who will specialize in that. 
but most companies have headed towards additive manufacture or 3D printing. And that's coming from the Revit model uh, or even a hybrid model. But we've been asked by the companies to take out uh, sketching and drawing, model making. And I, again, remember what we are doing. I'm trying to train within two years. I have an HNC and an HND course. So that's like year one of a degree and year two of a degree. And at the end of that, our students need to have all the skills that they can walk straight into employment and do a good professional job. That's not going into a company and saying, I don't know how to do anything and you need to train me. They're going in knowing how to actually do a very, very high level professional job. At no point in that are any of the companies that we partner with or in Scotland that we work with, are they going to be doing physical model making? They're just not. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, for just trying to, to push to what really matters in education as well. I've been teaching and, and a student for many years now as well. And I guess, mm -hmm. well, I guess that there is quite a good point about focusing on what you really use in practice as well, because it's going to be what you actually need to, to, to be able to earn some money as well. So, yeah, thank you for There, for, there is, for I have to come it. back to that, um, Daniel, because I do enjoy model making. I do enjoy sketching and drawing. I do enjoy uh, working on a drawing board and doing lovely technical details. But I think if that's something you're interested in, I think that's something that would differentiate you as a student. And But you should do that in your own time. I'm very limited in the amount of time I have with a student to teach them vocational skills. So we really need to pick those. Unfortunately, because I love teaching them and I love doing them. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And especially looking at your so tough time schedule it really does sound like there isn't any other way of just focusing what you really need to do it's like it's not that's not a lot of time not at all well how was your time in covid19 times this year seems like all of the circumstances has influenced you as well doesn't it yes absolutely we tried hard um march time round about march time we had been trying hard um to try and keep it how would you how would you describe it try and keep it um, normalize it, try and keep it and it got so bad that you couldn't normalize it. Um, colleges decided or public buildings decided that uh, they had to close and we had to continue teaching from home. Um, so that kind of moved from I, I think I really enjoy the interaction stood in front of a class of students and whether you're teaching software or whether you're teaching theory you still have that interaction uh, with the students and moving to a distance learning or remote teaching uh, style has been quite challenging. Uh, I think I've found just where before in the class, my teaching style was always a kind of a, here is an example of what we're doing today. And I would run through the whole thing. Um, maybe even 10 minutes tutorial, I would go through every step and then we would go back to the beginning. So step one, now you follow the leader. So I'll do this nice and slowly. And in the classroom, I would have a big projector screen behind me and every student watches the screen and they copy what I'm doing on their, uh, on their computer. And it's slow, step by step, great way to learn. Um, everybody learns by doing the same thing again and again. And going to the, the kind of remote, the distance learning, what we found was um, it's, it's looking at video lessons, recording the lessons. If I record my screen as if I'm speaking to a class, I could record the screen and then upload that to YouTube. And then 
Um, the students got to watch that at any time they wanted. Um, if anyone was available during the timetable class time, then we could watch it together. But a lot of students maybe had uh, taken on extra employment. So possibly they were working in a supermarket. Some maybe worked for healthcare and so on. So they might not have been available at the time that we were delivering the class, which meant that the video lesson would be made available to them. Um, what I have found actually is even over the summer, because I uploaded it to the college YouTube, YouTube allows you to uh, interrogate statistics. So we're looking at the statistics of what was the age group of the students watching these videos? What, how long did they watch them? There's an interest. Oh. <laughs> any, any video over five minutes long and about three minutes in the videos, 80% of the people were switching them off, we found. Oh no. <laughs> yes, so that's influenced what I did also. That's influenced us because what we're now doing is let's take those five minute videos, let's make them two and a half, three minute long videos. And the interaction between that, the number of people watching them increased, the length of uh, playback time, if you like, increased as well. So it definitely influenced where before I had much more interaction. What I would say is it's affected me and the students in a way that there's less uh, interaction, less rapport building. Does that make sense? Less interaction and kind of us totally develop, does. yeah, even to develop uh, friendships with each other or kind of rapport with each other. It definitely there is now a digital barrier in the way. Now, while I I, I can hear out like that, the digital barrier itself seems to be quite of a of an impact on the way of teaching which it was for me as well but i, I guess it, it helps all of us to appreciate how important it is to have all of this physical contact while teaching as we usually do and well let's hope to get back to normal anytime soon yes let's hope i, I would i would love to invite one of your students to jump into our podcast to, to see how tea as the students experience this time. So welcome, David, in our podcast. Hello. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Michael. Hello. How was it for Hello. you as a student to experience all of this physical interaction without physical interaction on a screen? It's, it's definitely uh, harder to go through lessons, especially BIM lessons, without having someone there to ask questions. Um, I guess there's, there's other factors you can throw in there about people with self-discipline and people without self-discipline trying to attend these lessons and teach themselves in a way. So I, I guess you have been one of the students which didn't jump off after five minutes on YouTube, but I, I guess it's great for Michael that he's been able to adapt so quickly on, on the statistics. And I guess that, that is the way we all need to, to, to react and act right now on, on all of this so fast adaptive changings of, of public arthritis. But I'm sure it will help you, Michael and, and David both as well. David, for you, was it easier in a way of being able to go back and re-watch the videos a second time if you haven't been able to follow up the first time? Or would you have been in a more lucky position to be able to ask Michael just straight on, rising up your hand and just like ask? instead of going back and watch it on YouTube? Personally, I like things to be, if I don't understand something, I need it to be explained. Um, I'm pretty, I think that's kind of the, the consensus among most of the students in my class. 
the information in the videos is great, but sometimes there are things that you don't understand and questions need to be asked. Well, and for, for you, Michael, this collaboration tools you, you ten used, was it like easy to, or easier, let's say in a way in, in adapting or implementing as you have been using digital tools throughout your, your school? Could you imagine yourself not having all of these tools and doing the same education or was it, I guess it simply wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, I mean, think I've said, I've been teaching since 2001. Can you imagine this situation had been in 2001? This would not have taken um, the same approach. Definitely the advent of technology, um, everybody having a personal computer at home and so on. Um, I mean, for example, we were using, uh, I know we were saying we were using YouTube. With I'm also a training manager for the UK World Skills BIM squad and what we did was we moved everything towards the common data environment so it gave the students a lot more experience using so that was cloud computers what I was doing with them was trying to let's assess them but let's assess them using a, a less formal approach if you like so anytime I was asking them to upload files which were even questionnaires about how they were doing and whatever that might have been they had to name it as per uh, ISO 19650, for example. So, so all point, even using the technology, you still got to try and tap into that that theory. But I think a lot of people, even saying that we, we're kind of pushing ahead and how did the, the technology affect it? I think the one of the biggest factors in this had been how was people's emotional state during that? Because as soon as we were told, right, you have to work from home. I know I'm in a house where six people live. I don't have a space, I've already said today, even at the start of the interview, in my daughter's bedroom, because I don't, I've had to ask my daughter to leave, close the door, because I just physically don't have a space where I can teach or have privacy. So I can prep for classes and I can create PowerPoints and I can create some videos and things, but actually teaching, I'm going to find that incredibly difficult to teach from home. Um, and there's students who are exactly the same position as me, they're either not going to have the hardware, they won't have maybe even the internet bandwidth, possibly they don't have a space that is their own space. Um, I know one of my world skills students shares a bedroom with her sister. So even saying I'll retire to my bedroom and I'll sit on the laptop in my bedroom, well, one, you don't have a desk, you're going to sit on your bed. And so if you don't have a desk, then your posture is affected. Uh, so you can't sit for a long period of time. And if your sibling is or your parents are coming in and out of a room, it's very, very distracting. So as a lecturer, even thinking about how I'm going to plan my lessons going ahead, I'm already thinking, yeah, let's use all the technology we have available to us. But also we've got to take in mind that people aren't going to learn and want to be taught the same way I have in a class. I'm not going to sit a bunch of students in my class and teach them for two hours solid. Where I could do something like that, where it's me for 20 minutes, then a little exercise, then me again, then exercise. I think it's education is going to have to change how it moves forward. How, how am I going to be able to instruct people? How am I going to be able to deliver a lecture to somebody who's sat on their bed watching this on their phone? Thank you for these so interesting insights. And yeah, I guess the social influence and all of the impact on, on our quite private way of, of doing and reacting to, to what COVID-19 changed in our life is quite massive. So. Thank you for, for sharing your time in jumping into our podcast in these strange times for all of us. And 
and I wish you both, Michael and, and David, a wonderful time and a good luck and success in preparing for your next class this year, which is in front of us. So thank you for joining in and hope to talk to you soon in person and not via call. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. That was a, a great interview. Some, some real nuggets there. Um, a couple things that I picked up on that, that I thought were great. Uh, as someone that's done a little bit of, of teaching and a small level, uh, nothing compared to what Michael's done, but the idea that it could take up to five years to get new content into the system, you know, that you can't say, hey, we've got VR in place, let's just put it in there. That's, we have to prep the class, we have to get the class ready, we have to put it in place. So that's the fact that they have to be thinking about what's going to be the topic of, of the day five years down the road is was very interesting to me. Uh, the idea that their course is designed to teach people uh, skills they'll need in the work field. They're focusing on those particular skills I thought was great. Uh, and I also like the idea where he talked about the idea that in today's situation, working from home and remotely is that it is different for a lot of people. Not everyone has a classroom or an office-like environment when they're working from home, that they can have that space to be their own and to take in a lecture and to, to give a lecture. There's certainly some trials and tribulations for having that type of environment. So uh, I really appreciate the content that came through there. So I, I think it was really great. Uh, how about you? What was your takeaway from the interview? I, I, I know you were part of it, but what do you think? Well, to start with, I, I need to say that I'm deeply impressed that my colleague Michael isn't just taking a couple of weeks off and enjoys the Hollywood this that tries to go out in the industry to, to pick up the newest, the newest knowledge of what uh, technology is doing and is, is developing in the industry to, to go back and introduce it at school. That's something I, I want to to learn from him for sure and would love if more educators would yeah would just be so passionate about what they're doing to be able to yeah to spend free time in in summer vacation to dive even deeper in what they are doing and and so try to improve all of the materials even further that's quite of an impressive piece of of, of work which he is doing there and i guess also how how the future of education is looking uh, technology-wise using all of what he has been able to achieve so far is a purely wonderful interview with him so while well, I'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to have this nice chat about that with him but especially i am i'm deeply impressed on how education will will improve with all of the use of the future technologies which he is adapting on, on such a long term successfully for now. And that's, that's great, not just for all of the students which can attend his classes, which I need to admit would probably have been quite a nice, well, quite a nice experience for me. And I guess I would be excited to attend one of his classes too. The next speaker we, we warmly in, invite is, is Martin. And he's also one of, one of the guys who has been, been able to be so deeply passionate about what he's doing that he's just living all of all of this pure madness about about the technology in place when teaching so let's welcome martin taura on my podcast stage he's a recovering architect and the head of technology at living room crafts in the netherlands 
Martin's profound in-depth knowledge of multidisciplinary processes and technologies not only keeps him in demand as a guest lecturer at prestigious university review, but, but he also holds a permanent role at uh, local faculties such as the Hanse Institute in the Netherlands with a focus on BIM methodology. I'm especially uh, excited to get him involved in today's episode as I would warmly like to get to know how he went through these exciting and strange times for all of us, but especially I I'm looking forward to see how he is using all of these new technologies in his teaching. Hello, Martin. Nice to have you on my podcast. It's a great pleasure to me to have you back on one of the first episodes of the Bit Academy podcast. We've been working together for many uh, different opportunities in the last few months. I'd like to mention your great help at uh, our guest lecture at UGRATS where you gave us a very nice talk about uh, BIM as a digital twin in uh, the industry. We are today here speaking about uh, your personal experience in education at your position as a gut lecturer. And I would like to have a nice chat with you, introducing you and your way of teaching to our listeners, but also having uh, quite some technical insights in uh, the way of teaching and the tools and materials we are using to do so. So welcome, Martin. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's a pleasure uh, to yeah, be able to share my five cents of knowledge on this topic with you and uh, with the listeners to this podcast. So I would say, I would suggest we start with questions. <laughs> Jump, Jump in straight, straight in. Uh, well, I would like to begin with a discussion which you are probably very well known in your daily work at office. We have for so many years now market leader BIM software developers which have been confronted with criticism that the BIM products for themselves do have a fundamental lack of development in the products. Where do you see the bridge and the gap between education and the missing gap? in development uh, software side? Well, I've been uh, reflecting about this question and we need to look at it from different perspectives. Uh, one perspective is of course the perspective of the software vendor. And uh, definitely I agree that what we see right now in the market is a certain amount of stagnation. So while we had some almost explosive developments going starting in the 2000s, going up to 2010, from 2010 now to 2020, uh, the curve flattened a lot. One way of looking at this, of course, is to also look at the numbers behind that. Um, if you take a major piece of BIM software, and I don't want to, uh, don't want to mention any kind of products, you usually had a group of, say, around 60 developers. Yeah? 60 developers per year in total will cost you $100,000 per developer per year. So that's 60 million, uh, 6 million in one year. Then if you take the period from say 2000 to 2010 is 10 years, you end up with $60 million for 10 years. If you then take the 
average sales price of one of those packages <clears throat> and calculate with 2,500 2, for a perpetual license, you have to sell 24,000 licenses in those 10 years, which, and I only have insight in one particular product, uh, they didn't even break even after 10 years. So of course, there's a huge financial cost associated with coming up with something fundamentally new. And uh, given the fact that the past 10 years were not so favorable for the technology sector as such, uh, nobody really uh, took the big stride to, 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 to come up with something fundamentally new. Um, that's one aspect of it. True enough, on the other hand, we now see a development where perpetual licenses are switched into subscription licenses with running costs per year, uh, which look a little bit like profit making for, for software companies. But in the end, uh, on the other hand, you see so many interesting things popping up left and right. Open source kind of, of, of BIM aspects, new uh, BIM tools, new digital tools. Uh, and having said that, and considering that, I think there will be some pressure on the established industry to push things a little bit further. And we can see it if you read the blogs, if you read the news, we can see it everywhere. There's a certain kind of unrest that customers now have towards the big software vendors and their update policies and pricing policies. And the same accounts for universities and students, of course. Well, wonderful. Thank you for this insight. Uh, may I ask if you do see a potential uh, drawback from students which possibly use knowledge of open source software, mm -hmm. which could possibly influence the development of uh, the whole technical tools we are using. Yes, of course, I see that. <clears throat> uh, it, it is there, although, uh, and that's the, the interesting part behind that question is it's relatively ambiguous. If I'm looking at it from a huge, uh, from a huge software vendor who's a public company who's on the stock market, they usually go by quarterly results. And since students rarely buy stocks and universities rarely buy stocks, <laughs> uh, they not, don't really care. That's one side. On the other side, uh, you see in, 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 in these big software corporations, there's the business side, there's the technology side, and there's also the managerial side. And the managerial side and the technology side quite actively listen to what young people, students, users in general have to say and come up with functionalities and functional ideas to be implemented in the software from, from that perspective. However, then there's the business side and Having been part of this particular process, <clears throat> there is something that's called the horse trading session. Now, development comes with a list of 20 things they think would be relevant for the software. And development usually has to come up with a price tag. Price tag in the meaning of, okay, in order to implement this, we need then that amount of time. In order to implement that, we need this and this amount of time. And that has, been, has to be sold to, uh, to the business side of the company. And then, of course, the business side, side takes a look into, into, okay, we have these and these and these customers who benefits most of the, this and that piece of functionality that they're going to add on. And that's where the business, business evaluation 
comes into place. So things that we might deem necessary from an academic perspective, or even from a user perspective, is going to be rationalized against how much more profit can we make if we do that. Okay, thank you for this insight as well. Well, I do see that there is a potential usage if the students and the educators start from the really beginning using new digital methods for education. Do you have some particular cases which you could share with us of pieces of equipment and tools you use for making it real and try to push this movement of deattaching yeah. from the big, big uh, software producers just out there? Yeah, for example, I mean, uh, one of the most obvious examples was uh, visual programming. For a long time, uh, one particular software that we wouldn't consider BIM software, and I dare to say the vendor, it's, it's Rhino by McNeil, had a visual programming extension, which was particularly uh, successful with uh, the education uh, uh, side of the world. Yeah, I can remember myself using it as well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and it became so, sort of, uh, you know, all the software companies became sort of a little bit unrelaxed about looking at these technologies because they didn't have an equivalent. Now, five years ago, six years ago, one of the major software vendors started to, to put an equivalent of this visual programming interface into its software. And now you can see it pop up with other software vendors as well. So, yes, I truly think that, uh, that uh, academia and, and students can be trendsetters in a way in having a different approach to how to interact with software on one side, but also having a different approach on procedural aspects of generating designs, uh, uh, generating form. And in that particular example, it was, uh, of course, uh, something quite biased on architecture. It was at first uh, software or visual programming in order to create shapes for yeah. these kind of things. Now the emphasis or the focus has a little bit moved away from just purely form to the data that's behind the form and the data that's behind my model and the data that's behind my bit. And now it goes into taking these kind of tools into as built models or even digital twins, if we dare to mention that one. But yes, of, this is for me one of the classic examples where young generation, maybe students, maybe young users, uh, had a profound influence on how software vendors developed their products. Well, thank you. It sounds like your students are really able to rise and further develop the value on the job market, being able to try out and work on visual programming, for mm -hmm. example, to increase productivity and also just try to dive deeper into how the data itself can improve the model just far ahead of the simple geometry, which we need to admit generally creates even more problems if you try to create a complex geometry and they're not able to take care of. So it really needs to be a second step of trying to introduce as I fully agree on how the students can interact with the geometry and the data of different models as well. 
Ed, you see, uh, talking about this, uh, th there's also one aspect that comes to my mind, and I think it's quite important one, is like, if you look at a stretch of time, you always see these waves of influence. Um, because when BIM started, it wasn't really the senior managers in a, in a company who were, oh, that's BIM, now we got to use that. Uh, it was more the younger ones and the young influencers who, who became aware of this technology, who became aware of the tools, who started to use those tools, and who pushed it up inside the companies towards senior management. And then whenever senior management got it, uh, it became sort of established uh, workflow, it became sort of established tool set, uh, and then the wave of innovation got slower. But now there's another wave of innovation. There was another wave of in innovation, like visual program, that percolated up in the in the hierarchy, and now it and now it became sort of a it's now being introduced in industry standards, basically, exactly. which is wonderful, and I, I, I they really need to share the same experience. Yeah. And what I see right now, and you know, it's maybe wishful thinking or or or, or something like this. Uh, I now see quite a lot of open source based initiatives uh, towards them, towards digitalization in, in the construction industry. And that, that might, in my opinion, be the next wave that we're going to see uh, happening. Well, talking about next waves, I would like to hear about your opinions on the possibilities of implementing multidisciplinary research design and construction as a methodology in teaching because we aren't just teaching the tool or the software it's more about the methodologies you already mentioned so what is your way to go in trying to achieve that when i reflected upon this question one thing came to my mind it's actually two questions in one uh, which sort of combine them into a, into a common result. First of all, you could look at the question as what are the digital, digitalized methods for teaching or what are the methods for digitalized construction, <laughs> which is two <laughs> different things, but, and that's why I think it's very, very relevant right now with all the things that are going on around us, especially this year, uh, both matter and both in the end uh, converge into, into one single answer. Yes, <clears throat> this year we had to start using completely different tools for teaching. I mean, I've been teaching, it was workshops with, with companies, I've been teaching BIM now for 20 years, almost. Well, it's a lot of experience. <laughs> or 15 years. And there, there was this traditional way of teaching, you go either to a school or you go to a customer, you have a room of people in front of you, you do your, your, your thing, uh, um, it's become some sort of routine. Um, it was just like that. And this year we had to radically change things and do stuff online. And doing things, teaching online was quite a challenge in the first couple of, the for the first couple of times, because it requires a different way of thinking, it requires a different methodology of presenting things. But now it's almost become routine as well. And to some extent, teaching, to some extent, I have to say, teaching online even gives a bigger value because, you know, we can record 
uh, what we teach. We can make these recordings available to the students. They can look at it once again in their, at their own uh, pleasure. Uh, you know, all these kind of things. So the methodology of teaching has changed. At the other hand, with this changed methodology of teaching, we are teaching a different methodology of designing and constructing things. And I think we have to see both in common. Um, I see a large potential in also teaching different methodologies of digital, digitalized design and construction, <clears throat> simply because I think they are inevitable in, uh, in the long run uh, only by looking at the cost perspective of, of things. Um, I don't see any kind of artistic or architectural value in having a run-of-the-mill office building with six stairs cases where each and every staircase is built differently. It just does not make any kind of sense. It would be like having a car with four wheels and each wheel has a different size. Well, it's not the, it's not the first time with construction industry need to learn from automotive. So it sounds like it's... Of course, because quite honestly, and what I might digress here a little bit, I am not sure whether there is a construction, building construction industry as such. I am more thinking about the building construction trade because there's quite little industrialization in building construction right now at the moment. Many of the things are made as, as prototypes. Many of the things are one-offs, except technical parts like air conditioning units and these kind of things. But when it comes to <clears throat> architecture, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to structural design, many things, are, it's mostly one-offs. And, and, and I think the digital tools that we have available right now will enable us to, say, generate a library of ideal bathrooms. Why do I have to, to, to reinvent a simple toilet every time I make a new building? And, and that's where industrialization, and that's where digitalization, in my opinion, uh, will, will, will take its stake in the 21st century. Well, thank you. I would like to pick up on your challenges of your positive perspective of seeing mm -hmm. the new ways of teaching with COVID-19 as sort of normal now, or as you call it, a routine, and would like to ask you if you see upcoming challenges for the educators, or which one of them is the biggest one? It's a good question, but the biggest, the biggest challenge I see for educators is the future as such. Um, because I think what we to some extent can see in academia, and it's a big point of critique that I'm sometimes verbalizing, is that we teach a past that is not present anymore. Uh, or the students learn methodologies that don't exist in practice anymore. Or students to some extent lack aspects that are very relevant in practice. Um, for example, when I finished my, 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 my architectural education back then in 1989, oh my God, yes, in 1989, I was able to design something, but I was totally unable to construct something because 
I didn't really learn about modern construction technologies. I really didn't learn about uh, about tendering. I really didn't learn about this and that. And that's that were things that I had to, you know, get educated by myself, get educated by other by other students, by other peers, uh, being out in practice. And <clears throat> given the fact that we see such radical changes in technology but also we see quite relevant changes in, in, so, in, 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 in the social network. We see radical change, we see quite some changes in the financial network. Being able to react to those changes and being able from a teaching perspective to really stay ahead of the game, if you want to put it like this. I think this is the, the, the most challenging part for educators at this point in time. Dear Martin, thank you so much for letting us know about your personal challenges which you do see and i very much agree on all of them i would like to pick up on the last one which is by accident the next and last question you did just mention that it is quite important to have a profound prior knowledge of the building construction industry in learning the beam methodology so to what extent do you think that it really is important to have quite a profound knowledge of the industry itself and especially the technical aspects of it. The answer runs on different levels. <clears throat> First of the level is, if I take it simply, I have to understand how a wall interacts with a floor slab in order to build a model that represents reality. Yeah? So I have to have some technical understanding how, how buildings work. Having said that, you could then also use a tool for creating a BIM to teach how buildings work, you see? And that's so where I actually- Interesting approach. <laughs> and that's where I actually see, uh, because there's also the question where to be, where in architectural, where in engineering education, do we put BIM? Uh, is it part of- Where do we put it? That's <laughs> actually quite, no. quite, a, quite a good question. <laughs> is it part of this course? Is it part of that course? Is it part of design? Is it part of construction? I think, it should be something overarching, overarching the different subdisciplines. Because one of the values of these tools and one of the values of understanding the methodology is to realize how buildings come together in the first place. Technically, financially, logistically, how a building performs on its life cycle. And we could take it even further and, and think about how a building is going to be removed again. Because that's all part of, of the new digital construction methodology. And, you know, getting that sort of understanding is, I think, a, yeah, a, a part of its own. On the side of construction, on the side of structural design, on the side of design, of building design and so on and so on and so on. So in my opinion, it really should be something like a holistic course or set of courses that guide students to this holistic view of the entire process. Okay, well, I, I surely agree on that as well and would like to take it as a closing point for this interview. Thank you once again for giving us these interesting insights on your personal ideas, which are in my eyes more than just your personal ideas, I guess it could be more of a well, pan-European approach on how to use 
some certain methodologies in in teaching BIM and other digital tools in the construction industry with all of your experience, I guess. It is a, a big help for, for all of us. So thank you once again and hope to be able to get in touch with you soon again. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And all the best in teaching. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I always enjoy listening to, to Martin talk. Uh, he's always, uh, the word profound was used and it's not underused. The stuff that he says always makes me think. Similar to the conversation earlier with Michael, where the, Michael said it took you know five years to get content into a school. Martin pointed out that it's expensive to rewrite and change a software so that that can't happen overnight. Um, not that that's necessarily a good thing. He did point out that that students and universities can have a role in changing that paradigm shift with the uh, popularity of visual programming that we're seeing nowadays. Um, he also noted that as an industry, the AEC isn't an industry. I like the fact that he said, maybe we shouldn't call it an industry. Maybe we should call it a trade because we're not repeating. It's not the same car, you know, a hundred thousand times. They're usually one-off buildings. We're very close to one-off buildings and that should make a difference on how we train people. And the part that he said near the end that, that literally blew my mind, I had to run in the other room and tell my wife was that he said, we teach a past that is not the present anymore. And that, that was perfect. Uh, you know, it's so true and it, it blew my mind and I just, I had to make sure that that got repeated. What about you, Daniel? What, what did you take away from that interview? Well, I totally agree. It was the, the best point he made about the way teaching works in general. And he is making such a good point about it, just showing off that these big, big challenges that all of us teaching, but also starting are faced to are so fastly adapting, not only by by the industry, but in this case by by Corona, and that's particularly what does impress me a lot. And and Martin, with all of his knowledge, seems to be able to to adapt even quicker than than all of us. So that that's such a great talk to just dive deep in how he is actually trying to not only improve and make lots of industries happier with the way he's working, but also many, many students, which are so lucky to have him as a great educator. Before we bring the podcast to the end, I was just wondering, uh, do you have a few minutes for, for a couple of questions for you specifically that I've thought of as we've gone through here? Yeah, so sure. I guess it would be a, a good way to sum it up and probably just generalize what our two speakers just said. So yeah, for sure. Perfect. So so Daniel, since you're, you're a lecturer uh, already for many years at the Technical University uh, in Graz in Austria, I, I was wondering, uh, how did you deal with the recent developments that come into place where your, your distance learning, your training, how did that affect you? And what did you see that was the, mostly the burden that you can identify? And of course, were there benefits from this distance learning and teaching? Well, Amazingly, there have been some benefits which I, which I even didn't think about it, which which is quite surprising to me. First of all, I need to admit that I really, at the early beginning when the first uh, measurements have been announced, I really didn't believe in, in me and our team being able to just tackle teaching remotely. But well, it seems like it works, and I guess I need to be proud. Not not just of, of me and my team, but especially of my students that we just really managed to get through this strange semester, which, which is great. And especially the fact that it, it turns out that teaching in 
COVID-19 situation is at least as, as good as it was before, especially in our field, because when we are using lots of technology from the subject of the course, trying to, to teach BIM methodologies, which surely helped, but the fact that it obviously was quite an impact, uh, not being able to, to be there, just sharing the knowledge in person, uh, opened up my mind and just making me realize that we not only had to, to transmit a way of using the technology and the methodologies of using BIM, but also a new way of teaching, which was, I guess, one of the big advantages or disadvantages at the same time for me as well, of not being able to just do it the way I was used to for the last three years, but actually adapting to something new, to new technology, which is ridiculous. I, I, I was using technology for the class quite a lot, and all of the new technology made it even harder at the same time. So that was quite a bit of a, the tricky part. At the same time, though, I, I really need to once again appreciate what we've been able to achieve with all of the efforts of the, of the students. And it turned out just looking at the analysis and the quantity takeoffs of the submitted models at the end of the class, we have been able to achieve a higher quality of the model, which is absolutely amazing. Last year, we had quite a, a discrepancy from uh, the master model. We handed out of about 6% in this year's model. The average uh, mistake in quantities was about 2%. So it's, it clearly does show that not just us, but especially the students have been working so hard to make it happen, to make it even better than before. So a big, big clap of my hands to, to every one of them. But especially also, I need to, to point out that the, obviously it wasn't just good or just great. We, we had some, some bigger disadvantages in, in all of this as well especially not being able to, to reach out to all of my students. I, as Michael said, and, and Martin somehow good as well, due to all of this technology and all of, especially the new social circumstances, I haven't been able to teach all of the students I was supposed to do so as some of them, quite a lot of them actually jumped, jumped off the class. And that's, that's quite of a pity. And I really, really hope that we will be able to get back to some sort of a more normal way of teaching to be able to reach out to the weaker ones as well and to especially then be able to hopefully influence people which probably aren't that interested in the topic but could be able to jump on this passionate way of teaching if if they would have the, the simple possibility to do so in person in class so, well it was a good way for us to to further improve and support all of the students which have been passionate and motivated about the topic, but, but losing some students due to the subscription of the classes is quite of a hard piece as well, so yeah. So coming back to the challenges of teaching in the time we're now in, what were your experiences in the quality of student work compared to, to former years? Uh, and did the additional freedom for the students had in terms as far as self-organization and you know, more relaxed time schedules have any negative or positive effects on the outcome, you think? Yeah, well, as I just mentioned, there uh, clearly have been 
quite some improvements in quality of the students' work, which is outstanding for me. Like in these crazy times, I really didn't expect anything like that to happen. And I need to admit that it, it really did be my mind to be able to just evaluate and 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 realize that actually the results have been much better than the years before. So that's a, a great plus for for all of us. And it well, it does show that things are, are going on no matter what the circumstances are. And while the self-organization <laughs> I guess it's more of, it's more, I would say that it's probably more my fault than the students' fault. Except we, we did realize that if we are able to provide a good concept and especially a good administrative program throughout the course, students are able to step up to it and adapt quicker than we do. In that sense, yeah, I surely agree that. Uh, as, as both of our interviews just said, technology we are using does help us to provide a, a high quality of class, no matter where the way or where, what the world is standing right now. However, while the, the negatives and, and positives do need to be challenged right now to be able to provide a better quality for the classes the next few years to come, as I would guess. So I guess to end to that, what are some practical tips that you can give us regarding the use of technology for teaching? Well, Carl, I'm trying to keep it simple here. And from my side, I would like to, to suggest to anybody, both students and educators, to not be shy about using the latest technology and the newest possibilities we have. And it looks like we need to, to get across this, this new COVID situation for quite a longer period of time in that sense. I, I guess I'm not wrong about saying that the students, from my experience, will appreciate the latest technology generally available for them if they are able to get in touch with it and also learn about the benefits. In the same time, though, also making a good clear point about what the risks are and what the challenges are about it. In that sense, if we are able to not just share content, but also share the big passion we all have, strongly believe in, in what we are saying. And in that sense, just being able to share the passion or probably or hopefully getting in touch with some of this upcoming news in technology of, of education, of the new construction world and industry is, is quite a good starting point. And it sometimes just can be simply in sense as well in just sharing the passion about it and the content just develops and grows from its own sometimes. So. I, I think that's a that's an awesome place to, to end, Daniel. And I couldn't agree more that that having having learning about something and having someone that has passion that exudes passion when they're talking about it, it just sort of brings everybody up. I think that's a that's an awesome way to wrap up our our podcast. Uh, and with that, Daniel, I'd like to say very much for this great chat and for the interesting insights from uh, the education side, and of course for the building industry as well that you've provided us with here today. Thank you, Carl. It's been a great pleasure for me to research this topic in the preparations for this episode. 
And it especially has been exciting for me to work on this very first episode for the podcast from my personality. So thank you for that and looking forward to many more episodes to come. And with that, we conclude this month's episode. In closing, I would like to thank our podcast technology sponsor, BIMTRAC, for their continued support of the Built Academy, as well as Peter Yozel for the intro music he's provided to the podcast. Be sure to tune in for episode four, airing September 24th, and listen to David's technology podcast, in which he'll be reflecting on us about automation in the building industry from different angles. Please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast and give us a follow on social media to stay up to date on all things Built Academy. Until then, on behalf of the Built Academy team, thank you for listening and stay curious.